Welcome to this week's edition of the Hot Topics podcast, the place where the global thinkers, innovators and disruptors come to share their thought leadership on the fast-moving tech ecosystem. And in this week's episode, we're going to be taking a little look at leadership. Because when it comes to leadership, many of us carry an image of an all-knowing superhero who kind of stands and commands and protects his followers. But in my opinion, and the opinion of this week's guest, that's kind of an image from another time. And actually, it's all kind of based on outdated models for success. And in a 21st century world, which is more global, digitally enabled and transparent, and has faster speeds of information flow and innovation, and where nothing big gets done without some kind of complex matrix, great leadership really does require different skills. And it's actually very different to what it once was. And this week's guest, Gareth Jones, argues that great leadership today is all about authenticity. So without further ado, here is Gareth. So Gareth, thank you for joining us. Um, your first book, uh, Why Should Anyone Be Led By You, was a, a huge success. Could you, could you talk to us a little bit about uh, what you think authentic leadership is? Okay, yeah. Um, well, let me tell you a little bit about how we got to write that book. I and my co-author, Rob Goffey, are both sociologists by training. And as this conversation continues, you'll see that we are still sociologists. Mm -hmm. And we both end up teaching at an elite business school, London Business School, teaching organizational behavior with a largely American literature on leadership, which is profoundly psychological rather than sociological. So we kind of tried to master this literature, but in lots of ways found it very unsatisfactory. So our original thought was, we've got a lot of data about leaders, but what we're really interested in is leadership. And leadership is a relationship between the leaders and the led. In other words, you have to look at the leader in the context of their followers. Now, if you agree that it's a relationship, it should be as much illuminated by sociological concepts as it is by psychological ones. So that's how we wrote that book. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it talks about the dynamic between leaders and followers. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we talk about situation sensing, the ability to read context, to be able to walk into the, the Maddox house and say, morale's a bit flat in here, or it's flying, or this ability to collect soft data from other people. Mm-hmm. We talk a bit about social distance the ability to get close in order to find out what's really going on, and the ability to get distant, usually to confront performance issues. So we we look at a whole series of social relationships which underpin the notion of effective, authentic leadership. Mm. Now, the notion of authenticity, of course, is itself ascribed to you by others. It it doesn't make sense for me to say, hey, I'm really authentic. Get it? I'm... It's actually what you say about me, not what I say about myself. Mm-hmm. So even authenticity is ascribed to you by others. Mm. Now, that book, which, as you kindly mentioned, is sold very well, <coughs> was based on an article that we wrote in Harvard Business Review called Why Shouldn't Anyone Be Led By You, which won the McKinsey Prize for the best article in Harvard Business Review, which we're very proud of, by the way, because Europeans very rarely win it. Mm-hmm. And we'll probably never win it again. Um, then we have time. come Still second. Time. We've come <laughs> second, which is pretty awful. The reason it won, I think, is it's got a good ending. It says in the last paragraph that if you want to be a more effective leader, be yourself more with skill. Ta da! <laughs> five words. Right. All you've got to do is remember five words, you're fixed. Mm. Now, you'd think people could remember five words, wouldn't you? 
probably probably uh, they probably always forget with skill. They always forget the with skill bit. So what do you mean by the with skill part? Keep renewing your leadership skills. Are you a compelling communicator? Do you put yourself in a situation where you can do good collection of soft data? Can you manage social distance? Do you conform enough? Conform enough, a necessary degree of conformity. There's a whole series of skills, and our observation was that the most effective business leaders that we'd ever come across were forever honing and renewing their leadership skills. They were, it's a bit the same. I sometimes say this when I, when I give keynotes. You know, do you play tennis? Yeah. yeah. Do you get better when you practice? Yes. Do you play golf? Do you get better when you practice? Yes. Do you cook? Do you get better when you practice? Yes. Well, do you want to be a more effective leader? Practice. Hmm. Practice. Hmm. Well, I suppose, it's, I suppose it's the same thing you're seeing as sort of a bunch of new sort of age schools coming about that are just ready to hone skills over quite a short period of time and just constantly top up those skills. It, it, of course, it's true, by the way, that the more effective you become, the more it's fine-tuning. You know, I mean, if you're, if you're Djokovic... You know, your skills are pretty, pretty high level, but it doesn't stop him practicing, by the way. Or if you see Roger Federer hit the tennis ball, it's not because he's a natural. It's because he's worked at it really hard. Well, it's the same with leadership. Mm, absolutely. So be yourself more with skill. Work really well. And people, I think, um, identified with this notion that authenticity is a pretty critical attribute for leaders. But, this is where the new book comes in, one rather clever response to that is, well, okay, Gareth, I'll be an authentic leader when I work in an authentic organization. But since I don't, Hmm. I'll go on being the same political player I've been for the last 15 years. Hmm. And so, obviously, you're moving on to this new book right now. Why? um, I mean, you, you mentioned how... Uh, employees say have a different relationship entirely with their organizations. Why, why do you think that is and what, what really are they looking for? Well, I think there are all kinds of shifts taking place. So we, we wrote a book in between why should, the two why shoulds. We wrote a book called Clever, Leading Your Smartest, Most Creative People. And it was really about people who don't want to be leaders. Mm. They don't want to be led. They want to be left alone to pursue their obsessions with H23 antagonists or complex tax structuring schemes or their obsessions. Mm. So they need organizations, but they don't really like them. Mm. So one of the things is the rise of the knowledge economy. Mm -hmm. So this bunch of people who we call clevers, Mm. who don't want to be leaders, don't want to be led. Mm -hmm. They they have very specific challenges. There's some very interesting research on generational change, though we're slightly skeptical about that. But, but undoubtedly, something is really happening there. People want to work for organizations that they really identify with, that they identify with the values or purpose of the organization. And that's quite a recent change in a way, you see. Elite organizations used to be able to say, come to Goldman's, stay for three years, you can go where the hell you like. Come to McKinsey, stay for three years, mm-hmm. you can do what the hell you like. Well, people won't even give you three years now. Yeah. Unless they can identify with what your organization's all about, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so there are lots of things which have we're, we say the world's turned upside down. So if you if you look at the literature from the nineties and fifties and sixties, it's all about the organization man, how individuals have to fit in to organizations. Well, actually, the paradigm has flipped. 
This is now about how do you make organisations attractive to talented people. Mm-hmm. And I believe you call this strong um, identification. Yes. Yeah. And that's about purpose and meaning and so on. We'll come on to that in, mm. in a minute. But so there's some, there's some pretty big shifts taking place in the nature of the employment relationship. Mm. And by the way, that's partly, of course, because the, the old promise, you know, welcome to Siemens, we'll have a big job for you in 15 years' time, let me tell you about the pension plan, yeah. turns out to be unfulfillable. Mm. Um, not even the big employers of the world, the General Motors, the Fords, the Philips, the Heinekens, can guarantee you a job. So people's attachments to organizations become much more fragile. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned about how, how kind of careers are, are kind of sh- have shorter lifespans, particularly at big corporates. I mean, I've, I've got friends personally who are kind of, uh, they, they're all on various grad- graduate schemes at big corporate firms. And they are saying, you know, after three years I'll leave, you know, and I'll go on to bigger and better things. And it just seems there's almost no loyalty anymore. Well, I think loyalty is a really interesting word and concept. Of course, for, for the companies that get some of this stuff right, the consequence is they engender loyalty. Mm-hmm. So one of the companies that we talk about in, in, in the book a lot is, is Novo Nordisk, which is a Danish pharmaceutical company. It's now the seventh largest in the world. Uh, when we first started working with them, they were the 17th largest, um, and the world's largest suppliers of insulin. Mm-hmm. Put tremendous effort into creating a culture that people can identify with. Now, what happens? Retention rates are very good. Mm-hmm. They're very good. Yeah. Now, are they perfect? Far from it. And yeah. We talk about some of the things they struggle with in the book. But, but if you get this right, you you get that identification with the organization mm. and with its values. Yeah. And so what do you think it takes to really you know, uh, entice the most talented people and, and keep them there and retain them? Well, that's what the new book reports. Right. So what we did about five years ago is we started saying to people, mainly executives, but not exclusively executives, well, okay, you tell us what would an authentic organization look like. Mm. And that collapses into a mnemonic dreams. So if I quickly run through the dreams mnemonic, D, difference beyond diversity. I want to work in an organization where I can be myself. And, it, and it's much more subtle than just diversity. Now, you know, diversity is important, you know, measuring how many women, how many ethnic minorities, how many disabled people, all very important, but this is not what people were talking about. They were talking about an organization where they can be themselves. So that's D. R, radical honesty. Tell me the truth before someone else does. See, in a world of WikiLeaks and social media and tweeting and whistleblowing and Freedom of Information Acts, the age of corporate secrets is over. Tell the truth before someone else does. Mm -hmm. E, extra value. Don't exploit me, add value to me. Now, we're familiar with that in you know, elite organizations like McKinsey or John Hopkins Hospital. But, for example, we use two examples in the book. LOCOG, uh, London Organizing Committee of the Olympic Games, which recruited the volunteers, many of whom, by the way, had never worked before. And the experience of being a volunteer at the Olympics has changed their lives. Mm. It's given them a portal into the world of employment. Mm. The other is an organization that gets criticized in America, certainly a lot for low wages, McDonald's, 
But McDonald's recruits large numbers of largely unskilled young men and women and within a year teaches them basic literacy, basic numeracy, and if they're good, within 18 months, they'll be running a shift in a fast food restaurant. Mm -hmm. It's a phenomenal way of adding value. Mm -hmm. A, authenticity. Mean what you say and say what you mean. We've got a few examples in the book. Novo Nordisk is one. New York Life is another. So after the crash in 2008, New York Life had a, a, a line which said, we were built for times like this. So, um, uh, M, meaning. I want a meaningful job in an organization which itself has meaning. And then finally, S, which is perhaps the hardest one of all, simple, agreed rules, not a fog of bureaucracy. Hmm. So, that's what people said an authentic organization would look like. Mm -hmm. And we try and give examples in the book of organizations that are making progress with some, if not all of them, because we couldn't find a single organization that, that worked right across the piece. Mm. And, and in the book, we give people a diagnostic. There's a simple diagnostic test at the end of each chapter, which allows you to say, you know, where are you on difference or honesty and so on. Mm. And so what role do you think HR departments have to play in this? I mean, obviously you were telling me about your background before. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> well... It's a good question. Sometimes HR is part of the problem, not part of the solution. Okay. Um, so sometimes they're the source of rules. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're forever producing rule books. Yeah. They're wrapping a process around everything. They're developing competence models which inhibit the expression of difference. So they can be part of the problem. Now, they could also be part of the solution. So... You know, we talk about Netflix a bit in the book. Netflix has taken a completely different view of what, what constitutes proper people management. Mm -hmm. So, you know, forget the, the appraisal. Mm -hmm. Or another organization which, which, which I personally identified with when we were doing the research, Arab, the consulting engineers. Mm -hmm. They say, we never give people four objectives because if you give them four objectives, you'll never get the fifth. <laughs> it's a lovely way of encouraging people to be creative and do new things. And, mm. and of course, they've been involved in making some of the most iconic buildings of modern times. Mm. And uh, so, obviously, I'm, I'm sure from when you were you know, in, in the HR industry, the, it's, it's changed a hell of a lot. I mean, we're seeing data kind of shape decisions and all that kind of stuff. I mean, do you think that's, that's really the future and the way that HR well, can really help uh, um, cultivate? I, I have um, long debates with, with colleagues about this. Because, you know, the, you know, the great fad in HR is mining big data. And I am now convinced that this can really help. Mm -hmm. right? So I'm, I'm not, however, I would add a caveat. It's not a substitute for walking around, taking the temperature, mm -hmm. having informal conversations. Um, in fact, when I, when I was the HR director of Polygram, um, which was in the 90s, so it is a long time ago now. But when I left, my boss uh, was at uh, my leaving do, and he said, uh, he was French, by the way, so you'll have to excuse my French accent. He said, Gareth did most of his best work in the pub. <laughs> in fact, he was there so often, we bought equity in it. <laughs> now, there was an element of truth in that, by the way, because in a business like the music business, an awful lot depends on 
20, 30, 50 key individuals. Mm. You need to get to know them. Mm. In, in a way, the big data doesn't let you get to really know them. Mm. So I would often diffuse conflicts or find out what was really going on over an informal discussion rather than simply by collecting quantitative data. Well, I'm completely out of questions, but uh, thank you very much. It was a My pleasure. pleasure. My pleasure. Great. Good. You've been listening to the Hot Topics podcast. For more content, including live events and videos, visit hottopics.ht.